Hi, Steve Mursky here for Scientific American Science Talk. Welcome back for part two of our conversation with Carl Zimmer. In part one, we discussed evolutionary research in the urban environment. Next, we talk about Carl's latest books, as well as a study that came out last week about toxoplasma infections and the amazing effect that they have on rats. You've also got a, a new book coming out and another book coming out soon that's a little bit of a departure for you. You want to talk about those? Yeah. So um, uh, in May, I published a book called A Planet of Viruses. Um, I write a dozen essays on a dozen viruses, um, looking at different aspects of virus biology and how viruses have uh, affected uh, humans. And also trying to make the point that you know, viruses are incredibly abundant on Earth and, in fact, are the most abundant life form on Earth. So, it, Well, are they a life form? I mean, I'm not even sure this question is important, but are they alive or are they almost alive? I think that they're alive. Um, you know, there's certainly a debate about that. Uh, I think that it's kind of an arbitrary distinction to say that you have to be exactly like us in order to be alive. Viruses do all sorts of things that can only be uh, done by living things. Um, you know, they they replicate, uh, they evolve, they adapt, they they have all sorts of um, traits that let them survive in very strange habitats, like our throats, for example, and uh, droplets uh, floating around in the air. Um, and uh, so, you know, the and viruses have. Uh, been controlling uh, the environment, literally. I mean, there, viruses um, help to um, set the climate itself. Um, they might seed clouds. Uh, they do all sorts of very powerful things uh, in the environment. And so um, it's it's silly to think of them as, as somehow not being alive because, just because they, say, can't metabolize a sandwich. Um, so, yeah, mm -hmm. viruses are alive, I'll say. So I should have said that that book is already out. That came out in May. And you have a book coming out soon that's sort of, a, I guess it's a picture book. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. So I have a blog called The Loom. And I, uh, I once posted a picture of a tattoo on the shoulder of a neurobiologist I know at Harvard. Um, I just one day noticed that he has a DNA tattoo on his shoulder. And then he explained to me how he actually had uh, designed it so that it spells out his wife's initials in genetic code. And I thought, wow, I wonder if there are other scientists out there who are hiding tattoos from the rest of us. So I just asked that question in my blog and probably got flooded with a, a, an endless supply of tattoos uh, with all sorts of uh, wild stories attached to them about every branch of science, from neuroscience to anthropology. And you know, after a while, maybe after the 300th or 400th uh, picture showed up, I said, you know, this, this seems like it would be a really fun idea for a book. So I picked out some of my favorites and then wrote kind of longish captions or shortish essays, however you want to think about it, um, about the, the subjects of their tattoos or about the people themselves and so on. And uh, yeah, and so now it's, it's called Science Inc., um, tattoos of the science obsessed, and that'll be coming out in November. Really looking forward to that. I, I'm going to assume that the um, Darwin branching tree diagram is a pretty popular one. That is a very popular one. Yeah, I, there must be four or five people who have 
um, the, the tree that Darwin drew in a notebook um, while he was working out uh, his theory. You know, uh, in the notebook, he, he, he draws this, this little sketch of a tree, and actually he writes next to it, I think, which is right. wonderful. And actually a number of these scientists have the tree and I think next to it, because that I, really speaks to scientists as well, the way you sort of play around with ideas and try to figure out what's actually going on. So let's spend another two minutes if you have them. Sure. Uh, we both covered a story last week that came out that talked about the fact that uh, mm -hmm. it's been well known that rats who have a toxoplasma infection will actually become attracted to the scent of cats rather than flee from that smell, which would be the evolutionarily prudent thing to do. So they get attracted to the smell and, you know, presumably uh, often wind up in the cat's mouth. But a study came out last week that showed exactly what kind of attraction it is, and it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, scientists have been puzzling over toxoplasma for, um, I'd say, about 15 years now. Um, because uh, it's got this uh, really interesting life cycle where in order to reproduce sexually, it's got to get inside of the guts of cats. So a, and a cat infected with this parasite is totally healthy. It's, it's fine. And uh, it, if it's infected, it sheds um, eggs, as it were, of toxoplasma uh, with its droppings. So that is why pregnant women are not supposed to handle kitty litter because they might get a toxoplasma infection. And for fetuses, toxoplasma is very dangerous because they don't have an immune system to keep it in check. For the rest of us, it's not really a big deal. Um, we might feel a little fever when we get infected, but it passes very quickly. Uh, we don't kill off the, the parasite, though. It just forms cysts in weird places like our brains. <laughs> our brains. We should point out that people who are immunocompromised are are also at a, a different level of uh, jeopardy yeah, from toxoplasma. Yeah, that's right. So when, so when the AIDS epidemic started to spread, one of the most puzzling uh, things that happened was that people started developing ca the cases of this disease called toxoplasmosis, where toxoplasma gets out of control and um, it causes inflammation in the brain, um, dementia uh, can, can, can be fatal. But, it, you know, the doctors were totally baffled by it because normally people just keep the parasite in check. And the thing is that HIV just tears down your immune system so that um, things like taxoplasma can just take off. Um, but, you know, in a sense, it's not in the interest, quote unquote, of the of the parasite to kill you or another intermediate host um, it in order to reproduce it its intermediate host has to get back inside of a cat. And mm -hmm. what happens often is that a, a rat, for example, that's infected gets eaten by a cat and then the parasite just moves from the rat to the cat. Um, right. The rat will get infected because it'll touch the, the cat droppings. Right. The sport, the, these eggs are just floating around in, in, uh, in the dirt, you know, and rats are sort of rummaging around and looking for food and they pick up the eggs and they end up in their mouth and they get infected um, so yeah, so toxoplasma, you know, in, where there are a lot of outdoor cats, toxoplasma can be very common uh, in, everywhere. So the, what's really interesting is the researchers found out what precisely what the, the precise kind of attraction 
that the the parasite endows in the in the rat to make them want to approach the cat odors. Right, right. Because because initially, they, they, some scientists at Oxford had done experiments in in sort of big enclosures where they would put different odors in different corners. And they would just see what happened to the rats. And they were just observing the rats. And they could, they, once they looked at the numbers, they could see that the rats tended, uh, healthy rats, as soon as they smelled the cat odor, they stayed away from that corner. And in fact, they explored a lot less in general. They got very anxious. Um, whereas the infected rats, they didn't change. And in some cases, they seemed to be exploring that corner more. So you have that observation from the outside. So then um, a scientist named Robert Sapolsky um, from Stanford University uh, said, well, let's try to see what's happening on the inside. And so they would um, they would uh, look they looked at uh, rat brains to see where the parasite was accumulating. And it was accumulating in one particular part of the brain um, in the limbic system where a lot of um, what we would call emotions are are regulated. Uh, and then just recently they did a, a, a very cool study where they were able to look at what areas of the brain were becoming more or less active in infected rats when they smelled cat urine. And it, it was quite mind blowing. Um, so there, there are two kind of, uh, circuits. You can think of them, uh, in, in this part of the brain and they're pretty close to each other. And one of them, it uh, basically you know regulates um fear and kind of withdrawing from danger and you know, being defensive in these infected rats that area of the brain was less active specifically when they smelled cat urine which is amazing and cool enough as it is but um they found another part of the brain right nearby that was actually becoming more active than usual and that is an area of the brain that is responsible for sexual attraction that where, you know, a rat will approach a smell because it thinks maybe it's going to find a mate. Um, so somehow it seems that this parasite is actually making this rat kind of, in a sense, I'm going to be metaphorical here, but fall in love with cats. Uh, it, 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 it is feeling, feeling a pull towards uh, the odor of cats, and therefore towards its own doom. Isn't that amazing? And what a what a clever parasite! So now the obvious question: Let's talk about me personally. <laughs> you know where this is going. I do, and I'm not sure. I'm looking forward to the trip. <laughs> you're not. You're not a you cat know, lady, are you? I have two cats. Oh boy! And uh, I'm just wondering: Have I been manipulated? I grew up with a cat. Have I been manipulated? by uh, Toxoplasma, to be in love with cats. So uh, people ask this all the time, and, um, you know, they've asked Robert Sapolsky, and he'll sort of shrug and be like, oh, who knows? Um, let me just put it this way. There's no evidence at all that, um, you know, cat ladies, quote-unquote, or other cat lovers are, are more infected with Toxoplasma than other people. A third or so of all people on Earth are infected with Toxoplasma. Um, and so, you know, it, someone would have to, like, do, a, you know, a, a really strange, very large-scale study to really nail this down, and no one has done it. Now, that being said, there are some very um, tantalizing studies, um, by no means um, the final word, but 
the, uh, these studies uh, show that there are potentially some differences in personality that arise when people get infected with toxoplasma. Um, you know, that, that it changes, you know, women, for example, when they take personality tests, um, if they're infected, they tend to be more open-hearted. That's one of the measurements of personality tests. Um, men tend to be more distrustful of authority. People who are infected with toxoplasma tend to get into more, get into more traffic accidents. Hmm. Um, you know, this does not mean that people who are infected with toxoplasma are zombies running around, you know, just throwing themselves in front of cars. Um, but, you know, there is something happening. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it's some well-adapted strategy of toxoplasma. You know, it's possible that toxoplasma is really adapted for affecting the, the brains of, of rodents mm-hmm. and other, you know, common prey of cats. The fact that you're giving your cat food and so on is, is not really, that's not really helping the parasite. The parasite would really be happy if your cats ate you. Okay, <laughs> a little bit different, um, and so it's possible that you know th- that these parasites have all these these very interesting um, brain drugs that they're secreting, um, and they just have a different effect on people than they do on rats. Interesting, and and it also brings up the question of who knows what else we might be infected with that is controlling behavior in various ways. Yeah, now that's that's an important point um, because it, it's not necessarily just uh, parasites that that are doing this to us um you know we we are home to you know uh, over a thousand species of bacteria a lot of them are, are in our gut and they're uh, they're recently releasing molecules all the time and some of those molecules are getting into our bloodstream and some of them are getting into our brains and and so researchers are doing some studies on how our resident bacteria uh affect behavior and they are seeing uh when they when they look at at mice you know, they've experimentally inoculated with different kinds of harmless bacteria. They can see different levels of anxiety and so on. Different, they can see changes in behavior. Um, you know, it's the, the scariest one to me, actually, is what happens uh, when uh, mice eat a lot of food and get really fat. Um, if you, the, the diversity of the bacteria changes, and if you take those species of bacteria living in in the obese mouse's gut and you put them in a mouse that um that has no bacteria in it at all that mouse with that transplant of bacteria will actually become unusually hungry and the only difference the only thing the only manipulation is that it's got these bacteria from a a a overfed overweight mouse and so it's it really looks like it's the bacteria that are sending messages to the brain that are making the mouse hungrier in order to feed the bacteria. (laughs) And, you know, so that, that could very well be happening to us. So we're going to be looking as uh, an obesity treatment at uh, antibiotics followed by fecal transplants. That sounds weird, but I bet something like that will be happening within the next decade. Wow. Hey, Carl, this was really fun. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, everybody, read his article in the New York Times, July 25th, available at the Times site and at Carl's site, and go out and buy his books. Thanks, Steve. If you haven't heard about fecal transplants, Google it. It's fascinating. And I don't want to talk about it. 
Get your science news at our website. That's www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out various exclusive web features related to our September single-topic issue, all about cities. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet each time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.